Man, that song takes me back. That's from uh, this place called... I ain't going to tell you where it's from. People might get mad at me and sue me for flipping their theme song into the Stony Island audio tag. My name is Open Mike Eagle. Welcome to What Had Happened Was Season 2, Episode 4. And this podcast is part of Stony Island Audio, my podcast network that is a home, a home, a home for people inside the hip-hop universe to have a platform to tell their own stories and guide their own narratives. We got a bunch of podcasts on our network, and if you're into what it happened was, I guarantee you will be interested in the other offerings we have here on the network. Here's one, for instance. My homies, my mentors, legends in the underground, Blueprint and Illogic have a podcast on Stony Island Audio called Super Duty Tough Work, and this is them telling you about it what up what up this is mc and producer blueprint host of the most infamous podcast on planet earth super duty tough work and this is my co-host illogic illogic say what's up to the people what up y'all what up what up what up so what is super duty tough work you ask the most infamous yeah that's true we are that but more importantly super duty tough work is a hip-hop podcast dedicated to helping artists succeed simply put it's where hip-hop meets self-improvement. What else is it, logic? Let them know. As old school hip-hop fans, we shine light on hip-hop in a way that only a grown-ass man could or would. Okay. As underground hip-hop artists ourselves with nearly 20 years in a game, we break down our good and bad experiences so you can learn from them and learn how the business works. Facts. We don't say what's popular. We don't talk about the latest hip-hop gossip. We help artists become more successful every day single week right and the best part is that we do it all with humor entertaining and educational in other words edutainment no, no shucking no jiving and no bullshit peace man i love that part at the end that was logic and blueprint telling you all about super duty tough work here on the stony island audio network where they rock alongside shows like the fatherhoods pie can't knock the shuffle dad by rap pie and self quar we're going to get into the episode, but I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, ExpressVPN. You know, one of the main differences between our current society and the way things used to be, I say, as I shake my fist towards the sky, things used to be private. Private citizens used to be private. And now... Everything you do on the internet, everything you look at, everything you search for, everywhere your browser goes, is all data. This data gets collected and people use it to create a record of who you is to make a profile for you so they can turn around and sell you stuff. And there's hundreds of data brokers out there and they sole business is to buy and sell your data and don't even have to ask you. And one of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. We share one. And that makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or a smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to protect your internet private parts. It's like, a, um, it's like an internet condom. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash what and get three extra months for free. For the free free, that's expressvpn.com slash what, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash what. Go to expressvpn.com slash what to learn more. And here we are, y'all. Season two, episode four of What It Happened Was. Here we speak to Mr. LP about his very first solo album. We've gotten through the beginning of Def Jux, through company flow, through the creation of Cannibal Ox's The Cold Vein, and we have arrived at fantastic damage. Here we are. This is what it happened. Back, 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 back. You guys get some snacks for help. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. 
Deluxe labor, the underground undertaker The whole capers, independent as fuck flavor Audio exhibit, visit the history To him winning without fucking with the industry And him losing without fucking with the industry No illusion, we tracing every movement in the symphony This is official from lifting of pencils Cold flow the depth jucks up to the fist and the pistol I'm sending questions like infinite missiles Digging for details when stories from the past come up And if he don't remember then he has to shrug It's what the podcast does, what it happened was What up, y'all on the internet? This is Open Mike Eagle, and this is another episode of What Had Happened Was with our forever esteemed every week guest. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. The man himself, El Producto. Mr. LP, how are we doing today? I'm all right. I'm all right. I love the name of the I love the name of the podcast because it just gives you it just it just lets you say it to yourself, you know, like so what happened was Right. It also lets you embellish if you need to. It's fine. Right. You know, this mm-hmm. is this is your canvas. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I'm going to I'm going to paint you something glorious, my friend. You're not going to want to see art ever again. Oh, good. Raising expectations. Fun. <laughs> um, yeah. So thanks for having me back, man. So then that gets us into Fantastic Damage. This is this is your first solo release on your label yeah uh, after you've done uh some amazing work and everybody's kind of got to be expecting this right everybody's waiting for I, when when l's gonna I, drop i don't know is that how it was <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know i mean you know i i knew that i knew that i had to do it that was all I, there was no plan b in all in all Maline's life it was you know i was gonna do this shit so yeah what was originally gonna be company flow album ended up morphing and anything that I had for that that started little scraps of beats or whatever ended up in a file and ended up getting sort of worked on and becoming the seeds of of an LP album. Now that you have uh you know you got a few projects under your belt at this point has mm. has your approach to production or recording developed does it changed to that point? Yeah. I was getting better. I was getting more depth, more layered. I was I was and I, you know, the interesting thing is I was really still just using the same technology. I mean, I had like a, I had a sampler. I made all the beats on Funk Crusher Plus, all and everything I did on Little Johnny for the Hospital, and everything I did on Cold Van, and every song on Fantastic Damage on a, one sampler, and, and, and that's it. There was nothing else. There was no other synth. There was no anything. There was just a sampler. That's amazing. Um, sampler, a turntable, and um, and like with, I think for fantastic damage, I like 
I went crazy and we used the chaos pad for some, you know, <laughs> for, for a couple of things. Um, but I had gotten, you know, pro tools had come into the picture. So things had started to, de to develop a little bit more. The reason why that is, is because, you know, in, before it was just doing it all in the box when on a 16 bit sampler with the sequencer there, it's pretty laborious. Um, and it's got its limitations. Those limitations make it cool. Those limitations that you, you figure out how to jump around them and play with them. And I was so ill on the shit at this point. I had made so much on it that I knew how to do things on that thing that most people didn't know how to do just because I was obsessively using this thing. But when Pro Tools came into the picture and you could afford it, that was a leap forward for everybody. And, and actually what happened before that was Digital Performer. I think it was Digital Performer before that. Um, so what happened with my shit is that I started to be able to see it visually. I started to be able to layer it a little bit more. The, even the Canox stuff, if you listen to it, it's layered. It's certainly layered. There's a lot of, there's layers on it, but it's not what Fandam is. Fandam is like the first time I did it where it was like, actually, there's about three different beats oh, that are okay. that have merged, that are, that are crossing, that are morphing. You know, so it was a step in a different direction. It was an evolution, I think, still based in that sample. Um, but being able to have that technology to be able to layer more um, and to be able to play things in live. So, so when you listen to Fantastic Damage, you would almost think like this isn't sequenced in some parts, you know, because mm -hmm. it's literally not. <laughs> because it's literally <laughs> me, because it's literally me playing the shit like um, Stepfather Factory. There's not a, there's no sequence. I literally played all that shit out by hand. Accidents don't happen. That, you know, it gave me the opportunity to create moments in a song that didn't repeat themselves and that didn't, um, that changed and morphed and that, and, and that would be layered. And so it was like a development in my, in my abilities or even in my, in my understanding of music and of what I could do. And that, so that record had this much more like jangling fucking like, it's, it's almost like you're seeing like a fucking plane crash into a building, you know, like mm. in slow motion a lot of times in that, in that record. And as it's contracting, shit is popping out of it, you know, and like, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I think that that would probably be the difference in sound. And, and doing Canox also helped. Thinking is just a producer and all. it started with Little Johnny. I got to just go back. Little Johnny yeah. is the first time that I started thinking about the music as music itself as just mm. as just a movement like you have to be able to listen to this thing and it doesn't matter that there are words on it there has to be a beginning middle and end and you have to be satisfied when you leave this it's not just a loop um mm -hmm. company flow was loops breaks hooks choruses flips yeah. but it wasn't it wasn't a piece of it wasn't really what i developed into so i started doing that with little johnny and i took that energy into the canox record and then refined that even more the Canox shit is moodier than what I'm, I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to do moody in a different way, but Canox shit was blue, you know, it was purple. It was like really moody and, and you could almost, you could feel the haze coming off the streets and, and, you know, like, a, and, um, my shit needed to be flames. My shit needed to be chaos. Were you, were you recording it at your spot or did you go somewhere different? Mm -hmm. So still in, in that, in that yeah. spot. Um, yeah. so with how you described, the kind of energy and activity that was around there and all the different people who could be there at any time. Were there any challenges in, in making the space, you know, mentally oh. for yourself to like <laughs> do solo work? Totally. Nah, man, you know, it was cool, man. It was cool. It was cool. I think that I just, I liked, I always liked the company. I always liked the energy, you know? Um, right, right, right. But I'm a very intense person when it comes to music and, I, and I'm intense in general in terms of concentration. And it's something that like, 
can be a superpower. I have a very intense focus and it's the reason why I can complete things. It also doesn't really work that well as a, like a life skill. <laughs> like <laughs> in the sense of like someone could be trying to talk to me and if I'm reading something or thinking about something, I literally won't hear them. And motherfuckers will get mad at me. Like, you know, I mean, to this right. day, I mean, my wife will be like, Jamie, <laughs> and I'll be like, I'm sorry, I was reading a word. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know if there's a if there's some sort of clinical description for it, but I'm pretty good at locking the world out and 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 making some shit. I'm sure that there are times when I've just been like, shut the fuck up, out the you know, out the door, you know. Um, <laughs> I think people knew to like, oh, L's he's cooking. L's in there, yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I mean, most of the time it was me and NASA. Yeah, for sure. Shout out to NASA. Shout out to NASA, way, who was a part of a lot. Yeah, and he's the, he was amazing. He's the best. I mean, he's part of this whole story as well. And you know, he was there for all of this. And he mixed uh, Colbane, and he mixed mm -hmm. Fantastic Damage. He's just great. He's a great presence and a, an important part of the crew. And um, mm -hmm. one of the saddest things when Def Jets ended, when we stopped, when I realized that we didn't have money coming in, was, was me not being able to employ NASA anymore. And I felt very. Mm -hmm. It was a sad thing because that was my dude. Like he was a dude who showed up every day, like it was a job at my apartment into my in my studio. It was his job. Everyone loved him, and he was. It's not like he's dead. I mean, everyone does love him, right, I'm sure. Right. But just in terms of that time, you know. There's a there's a lyric that stood out to me on the album. You say you misinterpreted that punk crush shit. Mm. But pretty early, I started to realize that people were saying shit I was saying back to me, and then attaching it to shit that I didn't believe in. So, yeah. Okay. Was, okay like racist type shit or not like fucked up not, political not shit overtly like what, racist what, what was no not racist but i guess if you want to dig into it right i mean i'm a new yorker through and through and i guess i probably felt like people thought that we were representing that we hated other types of rap music got you i see so like yeah, the, the separatist, kind of separatist shit, yeah. Uh, we we hate the, we hate the main exactly. We don't. And I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm, I'm guilt free in that because we did hate the mainstream for a while at a certain mm -hmm. point. Because so did everybody though, right. <laughs> you know, who was in the right. underground. Because the music wasn't what we wanted to make. We just didn't like the music. Cats weren't making that shit. Like it was just wasn't interesting to us, and it wasn't didn't make sense to us. No one had any fucking money, so we couldn't talk about anything mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> And, you know, now I, you know, I can talk about that shit, you know, like uh, if I really wanted to, I could say something, but you know the deal. We don't have to go over that. It was a time and a place, so I'm not guilt free, but I remember feeling like, hold on a second. You don't, you don't really get who I am. I like, I bought the car. I can kick the tires. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm actually right. in this. I really do love this shit. Actually. You know, I think everyone goes through this, right? Like De La Soul went through it and then by the time they got to stay Soul soul was right, dead right. they they wanted motherfuckers to know that they would punch you in your face they wanted you to know that right <laughs> you know the, the don't the, the don't, don't get exactly. it twisted don't get a twisted record yeah <laughs> um so i think that everyone everyone who um gets adopted by sort of a, a, a group of people that look at stuff like it's intellectual or something they have that moment where they got to do their don't get a twisted line you know and uh that might have been it you know so listening to this album i feel like and if you take a general arc of it, it feels like it starts off real B-boy, punch you in the face. I got lyrics for everybody. And it kind of opens up in a more personal joint. Is that kind of how you envisioned it? I didn't really envision it. I mean, I just sort of did jams as they came. I think that Word. my safe space was like, I'm going to make some raw shit. That's like how yeah, I can yeah. get going. To this day, if I sit down on some to make a run of jewels, I promise you the first jam that we make is going to be about shooting a puppy. Like, that's like... <laughs> Just to kick the cobwebs off, like we're gonna go to our, we're gonna go to what's natural Word. for us, which is make something raw. Because I think that you need to kind of get going a little bit. And you know, quite honestly, I think that that album, Fantastic Damage, probably unfolded kind of chronologically to some degree in the way that I made that record. Mm. Um, but what I will say is that this, the record starts with, or, or the second jam on there is Squeegee Man Shooting. That was when I started to open the door. Like, if you notice or if you read the lyrics and that, that, that was about New York. That was about my childhood. That was about, it was like the first time that I started to be like, okay, like the first jam, Fantastic Damage was all flames and fucking cadences that I probably would never even think to do now because I'd be like, what the fuck was I doing? And then it was like, well, 
now that you're here, I'm going to ease you into this, but I'm going to start to open the door a little bit on Jamie Moline, I guess, and what my life was a little bit and, and the way that I look at it for myself too. It was like, all right, it's B-boy, get live, y'all, live, y'all. But like, I started to relate it back to yeah. a spirit of where I came from and what, what I saw and what inspired me and kind of how, you know, wrote raps in my room, sipping Capri Suns, you know, <laughs> borrowed the cadences of Kumo D and Rick, put my name into my words and amassed it. I was just sort of giving the intro who I was as a person. I felt like I needed to do why I was here. Like, why are you even here making a rap record? You know, like, that's weird. You're like, here's this fucking guy got it. When you were part of a group, you were this verbose fucking clever guy who had punchlines and shit. But now what's your point here as a person? Why do we listen to you? And I think I was asking myself that question. I'm not saying that that was what other people were saying. Mm. I think I was asking myself that. So I had to start from the beginning a little bit. And I had to remember just how it happened. And maybe if I could remember how it happened, then I could understand it a little bit and understand you know, myself. Damn. Uh, in song Constellation Funk, you have a verse that kind of feels like it's going in on like the concept of white rappers and authenticity. And it's kind of like you're seeing something happening that you're describing. Um, and and it's you know it's real interesting because at that time you know in the, in the underground there is this kind of like um, surgeons I don't know resurgence whatever like in, there's a insurgents, lot of white rappers you know, on the scene. Insurgents, yeah. <laughs> <There we go. laughs> um, but it, it's funny when I'm listening to it because like over the years, especially when I started to actually get into business. I started to get this real sensitivity about like white rappers in the underground. And and, it, and I think it's just on some like, to me, it was like whether or not they were kind of like acknowledging the privilege that they had and how much easier it was for people to relate to them, quote unquote, or whatever. Um, and whether or not they were given any reverence to like, you know, the black artists that came before the black artists doing it at the same time. But the funny thing is, I never, when I think about it, I like never thought of you as like a white rapper, like, and and that's that's interesting to me that I didn't feel that way about you, um, as as someone trying to culturally appropriate, um, and and I wonder like, did you ever have to like deal with that with people coming at you with that type of energy thinking? I don't that think I carried myself that way, man. All you can do, I think, is adhere to the idea that if you're going to be involved in something, that you contribute to it. And um, mm. as long as I've ever been doing it, my desire, my ethos, and my, my hope has been that when I'm done with this, that people can look at what I've done in my career and say that I contributed something. I was adding a piece to a giant collage of, of a bunch of different souls and people that got together and participated. I'm really an artist, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm really trying to find myself through this music. Yeah. There's no question about mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. I always hoped and felt like people saw that about me. And I think that the people that don't see that about me are, you know, maybe the people that just don't know me. And that's okay. I think you got to be okay with it. How can you not be? A lot of people tied this record mm -hmm. to 9-11. It's released mm -hmm. in 2002. You're in New York. Clearly, that's all happening mm -hmm. while you're making this project. In your mind, what's the actual relationship between Fantastic Damage and 9-11-2001. There was really only probably about one or two jams that were finished after 9-11. The rest of the record was created and written before 9-11, um, which even for me made some of the shit I was saying eerie. There was, mm -hmm. some, there was some insane shit. And I'll tell you some of the shit that didn't make it on the album, but that ties into this sort of weird, rolling, unintentional prescience that I've bumped into a few times where I haven't wanted to, but it's been like undeniable. The only song that contains a bar about 9-11 that was strictly legitimately about 9-11 was, was um, Accidents Don't Happen. And it was something about like mm -hmm. flight of the accidental Taurus, morbid, the gods of distortion, so oddly court shit. Mm. Bloomy bought the city of Lego and Metal Hall, mm. burnt to the floorboards, almost aborted. I don't, I'm totally fucking my own. I'm fucking my shit up worse than Gene. Worse than fucking genius fucks my shit up. <laughs> but again, you know, A, I'm stoned, and B, you know, I don't listen to this shit. But just, just to hey. say that there was jams on there that you would think were written about 9-11 that weren't. Like, right. like Dead Disney. Well, well, what do you think that speaks to? 
like you know in, in terms of you being kind of aware of the dystopian <laughs> nature of everything <laughs> to the point where your albums can feel right like, and how i'm does that, still how does that feel? what do you think about that day by the way we still drop right run the jewels four we were we wrote that shit last year and we were dropping the shit right. people were like they right. wrote it this week you know and we're like but, <laughs> uh, yeah it's not how anything works folks so i've always had this sort of like uh push and pull a little bit of a, a like a struggle with my own work to some degree but it's not a struggle with my own work yeah. as much as it is a, is a struggle with myself because there was a period of time you know, when I was younger, I would say in my late teens, when I experienced something damn near spiritual. I can't really explain it. I can't really say it without it sounding strange or, or sort of self-mythologizing. But what I can say is that at a certain point, I was dislodged from school early, you know, and I was dislodged from... Yeah. I was dislodged from the normal reality of what everyone my age was normally doing around me. And at the same time, right. I was, I had been continuing on my sort of journey of, of shit that I was interested in and reading. And, and, you know, I was, I was, as everyone knows, reading a lot of Philip K. Dick and I was, you know, and a lot of other things. Um, and there was a period of time where I remember this very clearly that I just felt like there had been a veil ripped from my face not just lifted but like ripped from in front of me mm -hmm. and i i saw shit different i just saw the world i was always very um suspicious of the world i was suspicious of authority i was suspicious right. and and untrusting right. of what i saw what was around none of it really completely made sense to me and that was my normal mind state and i say this shit actually not to reference my new material but i, I actually tackle that shit on the last song of, of Run the Jewels 4. You know, everything can seem a little out of place. All my life, that's been my only normal state. Yeah. So being normal never really meant being sane. And being clear about the truth and being sane right. never really felt the same. And that's something that was very real for me because when you're on edge all the time and you can't necessarily explain why, apart from the fact that you have this there's something that's happening in your mind that's not computing with, with what's being presented to you it's an intuition maybe those those intuitions become fulfilled by information that you gather as you get older and you start to see the world a little bit more and you start to understand right. the dynamics of the world but i had a very violent sort of awakening intellectually and spiritually i think you know when i'm not spiritually like religiously but spiritually in the way that i think about it which is mm -hmm. a movement of information and and um and feeling that seems to come from somewhere else seems to enter you and and you couldn't even tell you, tell someone why but all of a sudden you see things differently and this all really happened right as i started to be a recording artist it all coincided mm. so you're like documenting this this veil lifting song, sure. song and i think that and company flow was a lot you know, you could see the beginnings of that, but I think Fantastic Damage, I was really confronting it on that. Mm. Company Flow, I was confronting it like, this is what I think about certain shit. This is my perspective. Fantastic Damage was like, I think this shit is making me crazy. I think, I think I might, I might go crazy. Uh, you know what I mean? I might be crazy. Right. That was the first record that I ever dropped where people were sort of starting to associate it with things that were happening that I knew that that wasn't really why it was written, but I also couldn't really give an argument as to why they couldn't associate it. I hear it. I didn't write it for that, right. but it was hard for me to just say, no, this, I mean, when, I, when I'm saying like, when the city burns down, I'm going to go to Disney World and I'm on my roof watching planes hit the fucking buildings. You know, and it's like, I can't, you know, there's shit that even I was like, right. all right, that's weird. I'll give it to you. Okay. I'll give you an example of something <laughs> right. that people don't. This is a, this is not known, um, except maybe to a few friends. Before the record was made, when I was making Fantastic Damage, when we when we were doing Company Flow, lived in Tribeca in a loft that my mother had. Very early in the Tribeca years, at the edge of Tribeca, and she built about eight or nine rooms in there. And she, and she rented them out. Right. This is how she made her scratch every month. She was like, I'm going to just illegally build rooms in this loft and we're going to rent it out to students and shit. So basically it was a flop house. 
that's where we made a lot of the company flow stuff. That was the loft that we made a bunch of shit in for a couple of years. That loft was very close to the World Trade Center. It was like um, two blocks away. It was like two blocks away. And so I used to take a lot of drugs. So one time I took ecstasy and I went down high as fuck. And you used to be able to walk. The thing we used to do is we'd smoke weed or drink. Or, and, I, and I think maybe a little later, I returned to that area because that was an area that you could walk around in and nobody was there. It was a little area, a little corner of the city that if you knew about it, which you probably wouldn't find yourself there unless you, like us, had for a while lived in that area. No one would be like, hey, let's go take some drugs and go wander around and go to the World Trade Center in the middle of the night. But you could if you wanted to. So I went out there on one of my little dolo, like psychedelic missions. I had taken some ecstasy or something and I went out and, and by myself <laughs> into the city. Like, yeah, I'm just going to go wander the, wander the city. And I went down to this area. I was alone and I laid down under the wind. This is about 1999 or 2000. And again, unreliable narrator. I, I get years wrong. But I'm, the, general, <laughs> the general period of time, maybe it was 99. But I was under there. I was by myself out there four in the morning. Nobody's fucking there. And I'm laying down on these benches. And I'm high out of my brain. And I'm looking up at the World Trade Centers. And I just get this feeling. And I call a friend of mine. And I leave a message on his voicemail. Don't remember what it was. Don't remember what blah, blah, blah. I don't see this dude for a couple of years. And I finally see him. And he's like, Yo, you know, I still have that crazy message you sent me. And I, and this is this is after Whoa. the trade centers and I'm finishing up my album. And he was like, I still have those crazy that yeah. crazy message you sent me. And I was like, What message? And he was like, You don't remember you left me that crazy fucking message about the twin towers at like four in the morning? And I was like, Nah. He was like, Yeah, you you called me and you were like, Yo, these shits are gonna come down. These shits are going to come down. I see it right now. We don't have much time left. These buildings are going to come down. <laughs> and, and he played it for me. And I was like, yo, first of all, that's crazy on every level. I didn't even remember that because I was on drugs. Right. And second of all, I need that shit for my album. And I didn't really know him that well at this point. And maybe he was going through some shit. I think his life wasn't going too great. He was like, yeah. what's your budget? I was like, but whoa, for your own voice, voicemail like, budget. My budget is nothing. Give, give me that shit. What are you talking about? Budget? I don't have a fucking budget. I'm putting this record out myself. And he was like, now nah, we can maybe work something out. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> I never, I was annoyed by that. He, Damn. you know, so I never, I never got it. So I don't know. That's not to say anything except to say I've been bumping up against that weird shit where you, you do, you say some mm -hmm. shit and all of a sudden to the point where you almost convince yourself, maybe I should just write about how I'm a billionaire because shit seems to be coming true. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but I, like I can't, I can't, I can't yeah. bring myself to say it. You know, like, just, just write, just yeah, write exactly. out these lottery numbers. Yeah, you know uh, yeah, yeah. Just, just go ahead and put that in the verse. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you know, there was something, there was something in the air in New York. If you ever get a chance, look into how many times it was depicted in comic books of like the towers coming down or shit flying into the towers, like previous to it happening. There was something in the creative ether where people were well, feeling something. Here's another to do story, with and towns. it's about the World Trade Center and something that did make the album, but it didn't make that album. It made the Company Flow album. Now, I told you that me and Jess mm -hmm. were in that loft during the time that we were creating a lot of the yeah. Company Flow stuff, right? I finished it up after I moved to Brooklyn, but a lot yeah. of the chunk of that was me and Jess living in the same loft near the World Trade Center in Tribeca. The original. 1993, I believe, World Trade Center bombing. I was there. I was in that loft. And I woke up Whoa. and there were ambulances filling the whole street. And I was like, yo, what the fuck is going on here? And I had a portable DAT player. And I went down, walked the two blocks to the World Trade Center. And I caught all of the people coming out of the building in blankets covered in ash. Right. 
and I interviewed them. Whoa. I pretended that I was news radio and I interviewed them as they were coming out of the building. And that interview, a portion of that interview got on Fun Crusher Plus. It's in a song called Tragedy of War and it's the beginning of the jam. And he's like, What section was this blockchain? In the parking garage. I don't know. And then the song starts. That's an interview from a dude who had just, who was covered in soot. Because he just came out of the World Trade Center because they had tried to take that shit down. Someone had tried to take that shit down back then. So there's some real weird synchronicity yeah. there. I mean, look, if you believe in any synchronicity and that type of stuff, I think <laughs> that we can all agree that, that it's easier to see those things retrospectively than it is at a time. Mm-hmm. This is all a really long babbling way to answer a question, which is to say that somewhere along the line, I started feeling and thinking things that started to get into my art that I didn't really feel like I was in control of. It just was what I was thinking. And, and it, but it felt very strong and it felt like it was flowing out of me. And it kind of defined a little bit who I was as a rapper, straight up. After the shit talk, which is really what my first love was, you know, my first love was just, you know, I'm dope. That was the other thing that started to come out of me as an artist in this really weird way that I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Because mm-hmm. I was, I always felt a little bit uncomfortable. For a long time, man, I mean, I was writing shit like Patriotism, that jam on, you know, that was one of my sort of bigger jams. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are fucking with? Do you know the access to weapons, money, and power that we have? We will fucking kill you. I'm the ugliest version of passed down toxic capitalist rapid MC. I'm America. America. That was during the Clinton era. You know, like I like I was very right. clearly the <laughs> like I was very clearly the paranoid guy. You know what I mean? Like I was the guy who saw right. the negativity in in the whole system. I don't Even know when everybody why. else was like chill. Yeah. yeah, I mean everyone wasn't really feeling it like that, you know? It wasn't really right. and of course, you know, here we are and everybody's dealing with it. Watching everybody go insane for the first time, it's it's sad because I'm like, oh, I know what you're going through. I, I I'm lucky I, I I had about two decades to deal with that. Now you gotta deal with it all <laughs> right. right right now. Welcome you know? home. Yeah. Um, I would never wish that feeling on anybody. Like it's not fun where everybody's like, Why are you <laughs> Why do you think like this? Like, what's the deal? Why are you so, you know, that's just the way I am. That's just the way it has been. And I think that it's ebbed and flowed. Um, And you can hear it particularly probably on Fantastic Damage because that was the first piece of music that I did. That was really me. and And it was right at the peak of or the beginning of the explosion of all that thought, you know, you know, you know. And now a word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming back to the program in just a second, but we want to take a quick second and shout out our sponsors, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is out to make your private data private. Currently, all of the places that you browse, everything you searched for, you watched, or you tweeted is all public information used to make a profile so that people can sell stuff to you. There's a whole industry out there, people buying and selling your data, and they don't even have to ask you about it. And one of these important data points is your IP address. Data brokers use your IP to uniquely identify you and where you are. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. It's masked, masked on like like Dr. Fauci. It put a mask on it like Dr. Fauci. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers that makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and steal and sell my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button, get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash what and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash what. Go to expressvpn.com slash what to learn more. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. You just spoke about, you know, having some 
foundational experiences, like especially around like school time, mm-hmm. like everybody else is in school. Mm-hmm. You were apart from that. Um, and you have the song Truancy on the album that feels like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's in a lot of that. Like, yeah, was that pretty totally. autobiographical? Totally. Yeah. I mean, it was abstract. It was abstract. I think, like I said earlier um, in our last interview, I think a lot of this record was me trying to figure out how to explain myself to myself or just kind of going over it a little bit for the first time. I don't you know, right. spend a lot of time thinking about my past. And, and, and I guess I felt like in order to do this record, I had to do, I had to do that a little bit so I could move forward to establish it. Like, look, here's who I am. This is what I understand of who I am and, and how I got here now in front of you. And so I touched on that a little bit. And that's one of the jams that I did that as well. And being pulled out of the system was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was, for me, the best thing that ever happened to me. I was not built for the school system. And what wasn't the path that was going to work for me? And it was because I was sort of half-assing and trying, it was leading to a lot of fuck shit. You know, it was leading to a lot of bullshit in 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 my teen life. I think a lot of people just just power through that, then you know, and then they get a job, and then they become an alcoholic, you know, or something. You know, um, I just wanted to go straight to alcoholism. That was my dream. Let's just cut the middleman here, but uh, <laughs> you know, as is my as is my destiny with my family. But yeah, so it was weird. It was it was interesting. It, you know, <laughs> never had I felt more free, but also never had I felt more thrown into the deep end of the fucking pool. All of a sudden, at 16, I, was, I wasn't on the path anymore. But I was on the other one. I was, I was on music. Right. That didn't have any guarantees, but it felt a million times more inspiring and, and exciting to me than what the previous path was. So. And truancy, that jam on truancy, is just kind of like tracing a little bit about that. Like, look, we, just, we weren't fucking with school. <laughs> we, we dipped our toe in as much as we had to. I was much more fascinated with the city. I was much more fascinated with the music and the art on the trains and what I could experience of my city. And being a kid in New York City during that time was an exciting thing, way more exciting than school. I became toxic, a lot of badly shaded cement fuselages of juvenile non-approval confusion and loosely smoking school that abandonment. With great expected movement, toss itself in the brain, honestly, shakily faded in my timeline. It's something honestly hard to stand. So drop out, kids. You know, it's the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, sage, sage advice. You know, yeah, you can be like LP too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you talked about your family a second ago. Um and that, you know, that makes me think about the song Stepfather Factory. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about Last Good Sleep on Funk Crusher Plus. You were saying that, like, just in terms of your own development, that was a song you had been trying to write anyway. Mm-hmm. And a lot of ways, Stepfather Factory feels like a sequel to Last Good Sleep. But it feels like you've advanced so much as a songwriter at this point that now, yeah. like, the the song you were nervous about putting on Funk Crusher Plus is like a fucking single now. Like, it's, Ooh, right. like this is a great song (laughs) you know what i'm saying um and so you know i wonder uh for you like what's the relationship or or how do you chart the difference between last good sleep yeah i I think um last good sleep was probably the only one that was truly necessary last good sleep was an exorcism last good sleep was emotional it really needed to be said for me in order to grow up in order for me to bury that bury this 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 horrid you know um trauma I needed to do that song, and um, and I did, and it and it really did do that. I think that Stepfather Factory was probably less necessary, but I look at Stepfather Factory as like, okay, now that I've gotten the hard part out of the way, let me fuck with this idea a little bit. Now that now yeah, that now that I've yeah, got a little yeah. separation from the from the trauma of it and from the emotion of it, let me see what happens when I apply like my my sardonic wit to this phenomenon. And I think that the whole point of, and I I could, I knew that it was, maybe it was a little bit also like, you know what, I know this shit inside out. I may as well just, you know, I may as well just talk about it and and see what I could get out of it. And I don't know if I hadn't stumbled upon this concept that I, maybe it wouldn't have even existed, but, you know, I wanted to, to talk about something that I felt very heavily in our, in our childhood kids of divorced parents maybe experience this a little bit, especially when the, the, the father's the one that, that isn't around. 
which is that there is a hole that parents try to fill in the family unit when it doesn't work the first time. And the auditioning process gets less and less stringent every time. So, and there's this phenomenon that happens with predatory men. There are predatory men who find women at their weakest, women who need the symbolism of what they are more than the actual reality of who they are. There are men who will, like a Trojan horse, ride in on that craving, that need, that necessity that has been created. and embed themselves into a family, despite the fact that maybe they're alcoholics and that maybe they're violent and that maybe they don't, then they're narcissists and maybe they don't really care or love that they just want to be um, important. Um, mm-hmm. And I like the idea of talking about that and also talking about the idea that even if you had a robotic substitute parent that could take the place of your father, that you still get drunk and beat the shit out of your mom. If humans could deem to create another fucking being, that they would be imbued with all of our flaws. And that it, it is the situation that was incorrect in the first place and not just the dynamic, you know? Um, right. so, that, so it was an important record for me because I got to talk what I knew. It was another way for me to talk about it where I didn't have to be as invested emotionally. I could talk about it sarcastically. I could have a gallows humor about it. But also there was something in that song that was I put in there that was directly out of the original experience that needed to be put somewhere for me. And it was the end of it when he was saying, you know, uh, why are you making me hurt you? I love you. And he's sort of repeating that and repeating that. Why are you making me hurt you? I love you. Why are you making me hurt you? I love you. Why are you making me hurt you? I love you. And that's what this man said to my mother as he was beating her to an inch of her. What I thought was an inch of her life. I mean, maybe she was she wasn't within an inch of her life. I mean, but at, I mean, when you see your mother and her whole face is you know, shredded. I took it like this motherfucker almost killed her. Banging her face against a brick wall is not like a love tap. In my mind, that's a type right. of murder. Exactly. So that so there was a, a serious emotional thing slipped in there that kind of completed for me the story. And, and I never really even told anybody that, to be honest. Once that was done, I think that also I was like, all right, you know, I think I've said. Wash your hands of it. Yeah, I think I've said pretty much what I can genuinely say about this. The truth of the matter is, is that trauma happens like that, but it lasts a long time. Most people don't have the ability or the opportunity to have a medium that they can get it out. So they carry it around. Process, and, yeah. you know, I'm sure that if I didn't have the music, if I wasn't able to write that, um, I'd still be talking about that shit you know, with my therapist today. I'll probably have to talk about that shit with my therapist tomorrow now, but you know. Right, yeah. Now that I've brought it up, <laughs> God damn it, Mike. <laughs> you mentioned with Last Good Sleep that it was cathartic to the point where, like, you and your like, you played it for your mom, and y'all had like the cry and the talk and all of that. Did y'all did y'all have any conversations around this song, especially since it's like a much more widely like distributed song? Was this something that you had to talk to her about with this one? I don't remember anything particularly. My mother was a writer. Um, yeah. really, a really good writer. Um, but she wrote for advertising companies. You know, back back in her in her okay. day, the way that you got a job if you were a writer was you wrote copy for advertising agencies. That was that was her gig, like Mad Men, like literally like yeah. Mad Men to the point where same era. Like she can't watch Mad Men because it touches. It's like hits too close to home. It's too yeah, brilliant. yeah, yeah. And she rose through the ranks in some creative. She, she's she's brilliant and um. I feel like what she connected with on that was the writing, like a less heavy connection. I think she felt it, and she, but she, I think she was more impressed with the, the execution of it. I think that the first one was just pure fucking emotion and, and 
There was gotcha. there was probably nothing that really common. It's not like you're going to be like, oh, I like it, but I wish you would have said, you know, it's like this. And it's like, no, <laughs> this is just, you know, you don't say anything to that. You you cry or you just don't understand it. And with Stepfather Factory, I think that she was like, you know, you're you're a good writer. And and I think she said that to me. And gotcha. I, was like, I was just using it as a writing piece, like because I could. Right. It was there for me. It just presented itself. You know? Uh, on to on to lighter fare, uh, a, a video where a bunch of people are pointing guns at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the video for Deep Space Nine Millimeter, I, I just I really love the video because okay, so you know you, we're talking about two thousand two, mm-hmm. which is like right after MTV and them like they stopped playing videos, mm-hmm. like there's no YouTube really yet to speak of, so. You know, not not at all. It was, Axel wasn't making it, videos, right? Was it even existent? I don't know. No, I, I think I think YouTube came out in like oh six. Right, right, so, right. you know, there was. There, I remember, you know, because I, you know, I was around people making records around that time, and there was all that always that conversation about like, yeah, we want to make a video, but we don't even know why. Like, right, it's like no way <laughs> for people to see it. Um, so. You know, so you get a lot of videos around that time that feel like skate videos. They feel like just like, mm. you know, somebody with a camera mm. and kind of like this one. But this video to me feels like such a snapshot of everything going on at the time for you. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's in your, in, in your crib, mm. I, I couldn't tell. Is that the Brooklyn crib mm-hmm. in the? Yeah. So you got that. You got all of the people around you making shit. You're going to the bodega. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, you're on a train. It's like everything from that era. Um, like who whose idea was it? How did it how did it come that together? That was my idea. In, con- in, nice. in in conjunction with my good friend Brian Belichick, who was the director of that video, was also the director years later of Legend Has It and also the director of Ooh La La off the off gotcha. the last run of Jewel Ship. That was my idea. I want there to be guns pointed at me at all times in this video. It was a heavy-handed metaphor, but um, it, it worked. I think if you, you, you know, you had to go heavy or go home. I think with that one, it's yeah. like you know, you can't just have like a gun. <laughs> you know, it right? Was, it was his idea to make the gun pink, like hot, like just really stick out, and to make the all the you know. It, I think that's that's brilliant. Yeah, me too. And he's a brilliant director, and me and him have always had a crazy uh, artistic connection. But yeah, he took the initial idea and turned it into something iconic. I think. But obviously, it was already a visual metaphor. We're trying to represent like mm-hmm. religion, the government, the city, you know, institutions and, and stress mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and the life that we live and, and going through someone's sort of normal day in New York City or, com- or, com- or compressing all the little things that you could do in New York City in general and turning them into a surreal thing, but not that far from the fucking truth. And then him adding the, and him making it like this sort of iconic orange pinkish sort of thing stick out that way um yeah that was that was a, a, a master stroke but that that to this day i think that that video is like i would hold that against anything that i've been a part of and the, we spent twelve thousand dollars and that and at the time that was wow. that was an unfathomable amount of money twelve thousand dollars for me was like Absolutely. i didn't spend twelve thousand dollars making my album <laughs> you know whoa okay yeah. wow yeah Wow, damn! I mean, maybe, that's, maybe, that's maybe, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, <you know, laughs> I mean, maybe when I'm when I was all done, I don't, I doubt it though. I really doubt it. You know? Yeah. Um, and that was all shot in that apartment, in the in the in the death jokes layer. So yeah, any any uh any cameos you think people might have overlooked? Because it seemed like everybody's in it. But like anything, any 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 little surprises in that one i mean shit everyone's pretty yeah, clear just, you know you got like saya from, i mean you got yeshua from Sian yeshua i mean you got so many people in there you got the adams ram cats you got bats you got rob sonic you got um yeah. sarush alvi um from uh, who's the owner of vice uh, mr liff i think is in that okay. shit um yeah liff is in it yeah um was was the old lady in the elevator was she notable in any way? No, or was, she was casted. Or she how was that... cast. She was casted. Okay. Yeah, okay. and she was insane. She okay. was insane. <laughs> she was like an old burlesque dancer. Like she, she used to be a burlesque, like oh. at Coney Island. She was like, I used to like dance at Coney Island or whatever. And, and she was very cool. She was hilarious. You know, she was on some shit like you know, I know I look good. Like you know, she it was. She was like <laughs> ninety. Uh, 
but other than that, like everyone was cast, you know, that was Brian. Brian always had like an amazing ability. That's, that's what I discovered. That was the first thing I ever did with him, but he, he cast the shit out of that. And everyone was yeah. kind of crazy. Like everybody that he cast was like, cause I guess he kind of <laughs> had to be like, Hey, you're going to walk around in the cold for no money for a $12,000 rap video with a gun in your hand, dressed as a nun. With a, with a bright orange pink gun. Here. That was done in post. All those were real guns. Really? Those were all real weapons. Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. Yo, that's crazy. Because they look, they look like they're practically colored. Yeah, no. Know? And I was always I was wondering about that if they had been wow, he did that in post. Yeah, that's incredible. He did that in post. There's an edit of the video that's that shows all the the, the regular shit. It's it's yeah. And I think that maybe to some degree I think I saw a still from that. Oh, did you? I think so, because there's this one, it feels like you're in the Brooklyn crib and then all the homies are around you pointing a gun yeah, at you. Yeah, those are all real guns. Yeah, yeah. Part of me wonders and doesn't quite remember if maybe one of the reasons why we did the gun, like in that sort of post way, post effect way, if, uh, if, if it's because we thought it would be easier to get the video played places, you know, if people didn't think they were real, you know. Right, because you know? I didn't think they were real because right. they were right, colored, right, right. so it worked. Perfectly, yeah. You know? No, we had to have the gun handlers on the set, the whole shit. Like, you know, anytime you do a video with real guns in it, you got to people come, weapons pros come, they show you, you know, how, like, what's going on. They empty, they show you the chambers empty, you know, like, uh, it's a whole uh -huh. thing. Shit. Ask fucking, ask fucking Brandon Lee. It's real. Jeez. Yikes. There's a, mo there's a lyric on, on the album I wanted to ask you about. You say you I dedicate this to Matt Dude. Thank, Thank you. you. My name is LP. I produce and I rap too. I don't know who Matt Dude is. Who's Matt? Matt Dude, Doable Arts, was the artist who did the Fun Crusher Plus cover. Ah, okay. And he also did the uh, Organized Confusion Extinction Agenda cover. And he also did a couple of other notable sort of underground records. Yeah, he passed away before. Yeah, before I did that record. Ah, rest in peace. That was on Two Mass Damper, that, that line. I dedicate this to Matt Dew. I thought my name is LP, I, I produce and I rap too. But he he you know, I just wanted to give him a shout. I mean, you know, that was at that age That's what's up. You know, at that age I hadn't had too many people in my life that I knew die. Not too many. I mean a handful mm -hmm. here and there. Um and, and, and the ones that I did, most of them made it to that record in some form or another or, 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 or the Funk Crusher record or, you know, I just looked at it like, if you were in my life, if I knew you and you, you passed away and I'm, and I'm presenting this, this snapshot, this canvas of my, of my life um, during this time. And I had this, uh, this opportunity to write my name in, in the sky and have people look at it. You're going to be up in the piece. You're going to be in the, in the, in, in the burner you know you relate to artists that have struggles and who fall by the wayside and i think that there's a part of us in our minds where we're always like it could happen to me at any given yeah. time you know like you don't know and, and not that it's like oh you don't know you could get hit by a car of course you get hit by a car who have the temperament of an artist it's not like something that you brag about like i'm an artist you know i have the temperament right. usually it means that you're struggling and if you don't fucking and and, and yeah. the art is the shit to do to keep yourself a little bit sane and if left to your own devices you could easily run off the rails right so i i identify with people who feel that way and i identify with the idea that you should honor that stuff you should honor those moments if you can if you have the chance someone else didn't didn't make it Give them somewhere to, in your world, to kind of be memorialized. Let them live on. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've and I've wrote about you know, and there have been many deaths that I've I've written about, and I think mm -hmm. that that'll always be the case. You know, one thing that one thing you know is as you get older, you ain't running out of deaths. Right, collecting them, if anything. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're gonna we're gonna end this off, but uh, you did a interview with NPR earlier this year mm -hmm. and part of it was covering the fact that the new you know all of your records were coming out on streaming mm -hmm. finally and um you had this quote about fantastic damage uh and and just your old records in general you said it takes me a while to listen to my stuff even my own new stuff without hearing issues so going into it I was a little afraid you, going back this is in terms of going back and listening mm -hmm. But it's interesting to confront your artistic past. All of a sudden, you can feel some of the joy. Your mind starts to tap into something. 
in terms of the way you thought about words. Like, oh, right, this is the foundation. This is one of the building blocks for the way that I think about shit now. I have so much distance between myself and that guy that I was even kind of impressed a couple times. Like, hey, kid, good job. <laughs> and as a last note on Fantastic Damage, is there something that comes to your mind as a hey, kid, good job moment on Fantastic Damage mm. when you think about it now? Ah, man. Some of it. Some of it, you know. I mean, it's a long fucking record. Yeah, yeah. They all, they all, all the albums. You know, we we used to fill up CDs, man. You know how we used. To I mean, yeah. Two minutes of bus. I was like, how much can you get on this thing? You know, like <laughs> it's a long record. So, I, not only do I have some "Hey Kid, Good Job," but I also have a couple of other messages, like "Hey Kid, maybe you could edit yourself yeah. a little bit," you know. Um, right. I think it's a raw record. I think it's raw as fuck, and I think that it I is. think that um. But I think that there are moments on there that are as good, good a piece of writing that I've ever done for myself. And there are some milestones in there, like writing a love song, writing TOJ, um, which was one of those rare transformative uh, alchemical songs where you did the song for a, and it actually like healed a relationship, you know? This unrequited, you know, love affair, this, this incredibly intense and, and previously unmatched feeling of love for a woman that I couldn't be with anymore. It was, it was not, it was not an option. Mm. And it was the first time that I had written something that was about my, my heart in that way. You know, I think if I were to say good kid, you know, Hey kid, good job. I just think that there's, you know, there's verses on there that I'm still proud of. Or I think I, I kind of nailed it. Sonically as a palette, it's, it's fucked up. It's raw. And it's um at times really, abrasive but it's funky and so i i think i'm proud of Word. i think i'm proud of it i also know for a fact that i'm not that same artist anymore i don't think about words right. the same way that i do like i don't think about patterns the same way I, I listen to a decent amount of it and i'm like get in the pocket get you know like what are you doing you know like but but but, you know, like, <laughs> but but at the time i thought that that was raw like at the time i was like no i'm right. gonna stumble through the fucking to, through the lines because yeah. because anybody can be smooth um and right. that that wasn't what was it felt exciting or invigorating to me at the time it was like i try and be forgiving with myself about the art that i made when i was younger be because That's because i'm also my worst critic you know what i mean like i know that it had an effect on people i know that people really care about that music and i know i really cared about that music when i made it so i can't shit on it I don't, it's just, you grapple with the fact that um, I've always been like, how do I get better? How do I get better? How do I get, you know, where am I going? Not better, but like, where was the next place? So I don't know. I, I guess I'm just going to leave that question hanging there because I, I think that my relationship to all my music is, it's not really mine to define, it's not my place to define the music. Um, I did it, it was a moment and everybody else is going to have to, like I tell people like, you know, about criticism. The part of putting a record out is that you submit it to the world and you roll the barrel and you just hope that it doesn't yeah. destroy you. You just hope that Absolutely. what you think about your music and what you think about the work that you're doing right now isn't completely off from the way that everyone else is looking at it at the time. And it's a right. thing that you learn how to deal with it whatever comes may come, right? And whatever the reaction is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you know for a fact that someone got you completely wrong. And sometimes someone got yeah. you right, <laughs> you know, and, still, and yeah. still didn't like it, you know? Or they have something to say about it where you're like, hmm, I don't really want to admit that, but yeah, you might be onto something right. with that thought, you know? Um, it all relates back to how you look at your own music. The only thing that you can do is walk away from a record knowing that you're okay, that you love the, the, the moment. Like that the moment you honored it, you stepped up to the moment and you did everything that you could to be who you were at that moment. And you, did, you didn't sleep until you did everything you could to make sure that you'd be all right with sending your baby out into the world and, and maybe getting hit by a bus. That's you right. Know? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> 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 that's real well you know I, I think no one could doubt that you were being true to yourself and your existence and the space time you were in at that moment and i think that really shines through cool. you know what i'm saying I, I feel like the the energy the the chaos the, the beautiful ruggedness of the music 
I think I think it's all there. Um, so yeah, we can we can we can leave it at that, man. I think because what you're saying is is real deep wisdom about how when you release something, especially if it's true to who you were, all you can really do is leave it out into the world and people define their own relationships. One hundred percent, and that's the way it fucking is. But I love Fantastic Damage. And also, I got to just for what it's worth, I got to put a nasty ass phase, uh, original phase two piece in the, you know, in the shit. Like I, it was like yeah, I got man. to like really curate this thing that really was just about me, and I took full fucking advantage of it. I, I was just hungry. I, I wanted every part of it. I wanted to have my hands on everything that was, on. and I always guess I always did. And it's and it's it's special in a sense. Like we've talked about you know, you not really ever wanting to be that solo artist for a mm. long time. So for you to step up and swing like this, I think it really is, it's a big deal. Do you know what I'm saying? Just in terms of your development as a human, that's a big deal. It was, it was a big deal for me. And it set me on a course where at the very least I was like, oh, all right, I can do this. And I see a path, you know, and it got me a lot of love and I did, did really well. And I was on the cover of magazines. It was like the first time that I had gotten covers and shit. And I was starting to like make it on my own terms. And there was no reason why you should say that anyone, the guy who made this album <laughs> should, you know, should experience any <laughs> success apart from just maybe appreciation from people who are on the same wavelength of, of music. But there was a, uh, a terror that I had post company flow, just really like, oh, fuck. This is going to say whether or not I'm in this, I'm, I'm doing this. After this record, mm. it's going to be well established whether or not anyone wants to hear from, from Jamie um, anymore. <laughs> and so I think once that happened and I, and I got a lot of love from it and I, it set me on, a, on my path for the next, you know, 15 years, 10 years, whatever. Well, it's a beautiful thing, man. Uh, and, you know, people love the record. We appreciate you. And, and thanks for giving us some insight yeah. about it. Um, means a lot to to us who love that music. Mm, thanks mike so yeah once again thank you yeah and, absolutely and we're gonna call this the end of the, the, end episode. Of the episode stony island audio, stony island audio.